break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 15th of March, 2022. Very happy to be back with you here on the show. Plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about the high cost of living here in the United States. Also about mass incarceration in the U.S. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with whether or not Venezuelan oil is making a comeback to U.S. markets. One of the areas the ripple effects of the Ukraine conflict are being felt is in Venezuela, where because of the economic war against Russia, the United States and European sanctioned regimes are showing signs of loosening as Western nations seek to blunt the impact of their own efforts to isolate Russia. U.S. and EU diplomats have essentially shown the door to the hardline right-wing opposition in Venezuela and its fake president Juan Guaido, raising many questions about the future of relations between Venezuela and the West. The biggest issue has been whether or not the U.S. is currently preparing a deal with Venezuela to lift sanctions in exchange for Venezuela directing more of its oil output to the United States. On March 5th, a high-level meeting was held between President Biden's Latin American advisor and Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro and Vice President Delcy Rodriguez. The meeting was announced more or less immediately after President Biden announced sanctions on the Russian oil industry in the midst of steadily rising gasoline prices, which made it fairly clear that the meeting was designed to create a quid pro quo to get Venezuelan oil flowing back into the U.S. market, where it had been a major force for over 100 years before stringent sanctions were introduced by the Trump administration. The meeting set off something of a firestorm in U.S. politics, as well as in Colombia, where the hard-right anti-Venezuela forces were clearly caught off guard and started doing their best to discredit the idea of an opening towards Venezuela. In particular, Florida Senator Marco Rubio and New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez released vitriolic statements, and Colombian President Ivan Duque also spoke out against any relaxation of sanctions and any purchasing of Venezuelan oil by U.S. companies. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki stated that a deal that traded sanctions relief for oil was not, quote, on the table, and State Department spokesperson Ned Price also downplayed any sort of deal. However, both the Miami Herald and the Financial Times have reported that there is in fact a deal on the table to relax sanctions, at least under certain conditions, to facilitate the flow of oil to the U.S., Something that Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, spoke to, saying that any change in U.S. policy is linked to, quote unquote, concrete steps being taken by Venezuela. One of those steps seems to be the release of two American citizens from Venezuelan jails, something the Maduro administration promptly did after the meeting with U.S. officials. Allegedly, the U.S. also wanted to see Venezuela, quote unquote, modify its statements on the issues regarding Russia and Ukraine and also to restart the Mexico City dialogue with the opposition. On the Venezuelan side, the government is saying any action on these questions are unthinkable without explicit recognition of Nicolas Maduro as the president of the country. So all that said, where does that leave things? 
As the concerns of Venezuela and Russia, it's notable that Vice President Delcy Rodriguez and Foreign Minister Felix Plasencia met with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov in Turkey while he was there for talks on Ukraine. Diplomatic relations between the two countries, Venezuela and Russia, are very close, and it seems likely the meeting was designed to coordinate their position on the vague demands the U.S. is making that Venezuela, quote-unquote, modify its public statements on the Ukraine-Russia conflict. On the U.S. side, Reuters is reporting that Chevron, the last U.S. company with any real ties to the Venezuelan market, is already in preparations to start moving oil into U.S. refineries as early as next month, and that the Treasury Department is working on a new license to facilitate that and to do the same for the Spanish oil major Respol. Further, the EU High Commissioner for Foreign Affairs, Joseph Burrell, met with the Venezuelan foreign minister in Turkey and reportedly stated the EU is ready to normalize relations and lift their sanctions on the Latin American country. So on all fronts, despite U.S. denials, it seems the machinery for a deal is moving along apace. Further, the opposition in the U.S. Congress may not be enough to stop the Biden administration, who, according to the Financial Times, had been looking to change course in Venezuela either way. The vast majority of the anti-Maduro opposition does not support Guaido and is increasingly vocal against the impact of sanctions policy. So it won't necessarily be that difficult for Biden to show that a new course in Venezuela has broad support across the political spectrum there. And staring down the barrel of skyrocketing gas prices in an election year, unleashing Venezuelan and Iranian oil into the market in a bigger way is undoubtedly the only real chance to meaningfully bring down prices, which should provide some political cover for the Biden administration to make a change. We'll have to see how it all plays out. But all indications seem to suggest that Venezuelan oil is headed back to U.S. markets sometime in 2022. <laughs> The Prison Policy Initiative has released their very helpful annual analysis of the prison and jail population in the United States called Mass Incarceration, the Whole Pie, that brings together the many disparate strands of poorly kept information from localities, states, and the federal government to help all the rest of us understand some of the facts, figures, and trends as it regards the U.S.'s massive system of incarceration. Overall, they relate that there are 1.9 million people locked up in 1,566 state prisons, 102 federal prisons, 2,850 local jails, 1,510 juvenile correctional facilities, 186 immigration detention facilities, and 82 Indian country jails, as well as in military prisons, civil commitment centers, state psychiatric hospitals, and prisons in the U.S. territories. They also note that their research doesn't fully reflect the depth of the incarcerated population because of the massive churn in jail populations. For instance, there are 10 million jail admissions each year, but some people get out on bail or are acquitted at trial. So the 445,000 people jailed prior to a conviction that's laid out in the report is essentially a minimum number, the number at any given time, but which could be higher at any given time as well. One other fact they note is how the way crime is classified has a serious distortion effect in terms of how we view prison and jails. One example they give is how burglary, for instance, is classified as a violent crime in some jurisdictions, even if the place was empty, something that is indicative more broadly of the fact that many quote-unquote violent crimes are really not that, just defined as such. And as they note, most reforms designed to reduce the prison population exclude people convicted of violent offenses. And since 40% of people in prisons and jails are classed as violent offenders, tens of thousands of people are just arbitrarily excluded from changes to the system of mass incarceration, which is, more or less, why many of these changes are not terribly effective. And ideologically, it presents a skewed picture of the level of violence in the country that ends up bolstering failed law and order policies. 
And that's something that becomes even clearer when you also note, as the report does, that, quote, people convicted of violent and sexual offenses are actually among the least likely to be rearrested. And those convicted of rape or sexual assault have rearrest rates 20 percent lower than all other offense categories combined. Why is that? Well, the report goes on to note that, quote, one reason for the lower rates of recidivism among people convicted of violent offenses, age, is one of the main predictors of violence. The risk for violence peaks in adolescence or early adulthood and then declines with age, yet we incarcerate people long after their risk has declined, end quote. In other words, policymaking in the U.S. criminal legal system is governed more by fear-mongering than facts. Similarly, the Prison Policy Initiative details how one in five people in jails and one in four people in state prisons are there for parole and probation violations. These are often technical in nature, missing a meeting or failing a drug test, and are arbitrarily applied by parole and probation officers, putting large numbers of people behind bars simply for quote-unquote breaking the rules, not based on any sort of fact-based evaluation that imprisoning them will improve public safety. All in all, the report is just more evidence that the U.S. system of mass incarceration is absolutely not based on any proven record of addressing public safety, but instead reflects the prejudices, biases, and preconceived notions that pass for, quote-unquote, conventional wisdom as it concerns, quote, crime. The Economic Policy Institute has released a new tool, the Family Budget Calculator which, quote, measures the income a family needs in order to attain a modest yet adequate standard of living, end quote. And it certainly also allows an interesting look at how in many places, most places really, the cost of living is above what a very significant number of people are making, reflecting how in the U.S. it's quite common for people to be living at levels that are inadequate in terms of actual human decency. In Brooklyn, New York, for instance, the EPI calculator details that for a household with two parents and two children, you need to make $129,192 to meet the modest yet adequate standard of living. The median household income in Brooklyn is $60,231. The average household income is $90,499. About 70% of people in Brooklyn make less than $100,000. So no matter how you look at it, the vast majority of people are making less than what they probably need to live with some sense of dignity. In Jefferson County, Alabama, that's where Birmingham is, median household income is just about $54,000. The EPI budget calculator relates that to have a modest but adequate living standard, you need to make $86,721. 69.1% of people in Jefferson County make $75,000 or less. So again, a large number, Almost certainly a clear majority of people living in and around Birmingham are making less than what they need to live with some sense of dignity. In Maricopa County, Arizona, where Phoenix is, a two-parent, two-child household needs $89,542 to live at a modest but adequate level. In Maricopa County, 62.9% of households are making less than $75,000. The median household income is $64,468. So, Another case where large numbers of people are living below the amount they need to live with some sense of dignity. 61.4% of households in Cuyahoga County, Ohio, that's where Cleveland is at, make less than $60,000. The median income there is $50,366. According to the EPI Family Budget Calculator, a family with two parents and two kids needs $73,999 to live with some sense of dignity. All in all, you can see the trends. For most Americans, income struggle to keep up with the actual cost of living, at least if you count cost of living as living with a sense of decency and dignity. And that is quite the statement for the richest country on earth. 
That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah.